Welcome to The Theater Project. Today, The Theater Project is thinking about the music industry. I am your host, Mary Ionelli, and I will be joined by recording artist Gail Liu and recording producer Sean V. Lucas. Thank you both for joining me. And just to give everybody a little idea of how this started for you and what gave you that fever. So, Gail Lou? Well, my mom and my grandma were into making sure that it was the thing to make sure kids had piano lessons. So my grandma used to get piano lessons. She had a piano. My mom took piano lessons. And I took lessons on my grandma's piano. And so it started with that. And then from that, um, my parents played all kinds of, like, Nancy Wilson. We had Stanley Tarrington. Father even went out and actually bought Barry White on his own. We were like, ooh, he's bringing that in. And they all sang to the albums and stuff, and so did I. But I have to credit also my uncle. He played Bar Streisand for me from the time I was five. And so I just loved it. And I learned all those songs and stuff like that. And then my mom belonged to a women's club and they went on bus rides for every holiday. So I saw all the Bayo City shows and my aunt worked at Pittman Playhouse and I lived around the corner from there. And my mother got tickets to that every weekend I was in Pittman Playhouse. So that's how I got started between the lessons and then all the musicals. I saw everything. So is live Broadway theater, is that kind of your first love? I think so. I kind of did everything at the same time because I would do that. And then I would come home and sing Respect because Aretha's, I have to go sing that in the record store so my father could figure out what what song I was asking for. So he had me sing this song, girl, that you want. So I kind of had a chance to do both. I kind of chance to, to get both at the same time. Excellent. And Sean, how about you? Mine was just me being a copycat. I had a cousin who was taking piano lessons. And as in, I think I was about eight, an eight-year-old, I decided I want to do what she's doing. And so I wound up taking piano lessons. And as time went on, about a year later, she quit. About a year after that, because I really believed I was going to play sports, specifically baseball, professionally. And I wanted to quit. And my parents very firmly and directly and without question said, no, we think you have something. You're going to continue. So therein lies what I was forced to do before I could go outside and play sports. <laughs> so that's how I got my start. And that just, it graduated to me playing clarinet in fourth grade. And that went to me playing in garage bands and so on and so forth. Thus it all begun. And now you spend most of your time behind the scenes? Yes, I actually toured consistently for about seven years, but that's not where my heart really was. I really wanted to produce and write, writing specific, because I'm that idiot that would stand and hear the car horns and pick out what was going on. I'd hear somebody in somebody's, specifically Stevie Wonder, in high school, how he was getting from point A to point B made no sense to me. So I'd sit there and I'd dissect it. And that's what I found I had the interest to sit and do for long periods of time, as opposed to Chick Corea, Joe Zaunel, and Herbie Hancock were my guys. I wanted to play like that. But then you start reading about them and they're rehearsing six, 10 hours a day. I'm like, I don't think so. I don't have that much interest in being that guy. So I gravitated toward the behind the scenes thing. So after touring, 
I could afford to do that. And that's what I've been doing ever since. It's kind of interesting how you even fell into the producing aspect of it, right? Well, not not the production. I think you're referring to how I got to touring because I had been actually recording at a studio and the engineer actually told me, hey, you play pretty well. You interested in going on tour? And I hadn't given it any thought, but sure, okay. And he said, well, there's a group named Lilo Thomas that I can say um, back in 1987. And they were having auditions for another keyboard player because something happened to the keyboard player before. So I go in, I'm in a room with a bunch of keyboard players and they're going in, coming out, going in, coming out. I finally went in. And of course this strokes my ego quite well. They said, send everybody else home. And that was my first gig. Nice. They told me I was going to make, and back in 1987, mind you, I have to say that because it doesn't sound like a lot of money now, but $500 a week, $150 per diem. And they said, you're going to play for half an hour a day, five days a week. I was like, you're going to pay me? I'm in. And thus, that was the touring begin. And then how did you get from touring to producing? Toured for a while. I've always, like I said, since high school, had the heart to want to write primarily produce an engineer because you have to unless you feel like shelling out the money. You just learn all the skills or else you're going to be paying out $4,000 every song I'm doing. So when I got off the road, I bought my co-op like my friend Mary did and set up the studio in here. And then that's all I've been doing. You wind up getting clientele. And fortunately for me, about three years before the whole COVID thing hit. I had already been doing it and I had a little bit of a name. So one of the dance people that I work with, a DJ named Mark Francis, he's very well connected and just had people that all needed something. So now, like I was mentioning to you earlier, he would send me these people and they just tell me, here's a track. I just need you to play a bass. Can you give me some electric piano and a solo? I do that. And if it's cool, I send it off to them. I invoice them and they send it back. I never even meet these people. So I literally have about nine or 10 DJs that I work with and maybe three of them I've actually met. But you've also worked with some big names. Yeah, a few connections in this business and in any of the arts, I think are more important sometimes. And we'll get into that, I think, a little bit later, because I know that's um, something with Gail Lou as well. So was there ever a time where you felt maybe this isn't working and I need to pay the rent or pay the bills and I have to switch, but something made you keep going? and, And what might that have been? Yeah, actually, there was a whole time, I think it was like right after I was either a junior or a senior in college. And I had my, you know, about to get my degree and stuff like that. And my mom wasn't that crazy about me graduating college to pursue a singing career. But they're the ones that paid for me to get my music degree. So there you go. And I actually stopped singing or pursuing singing professionally for about a year. And I was like, okay, I'm not going to worry about it. I'm going to do something else. and I'm going to do this. And after that year, I was like, this is stupid because this is what I got to do. I mean, this is what I do best. This is what I've been blessed with. And I just had to go home and say, ma, sorry, this is what I'm going to do. And I'm going to be auditioning and stuff like that. And she was like, well, as long as you get a job first. So. I kind of auditioned in between Xerox and got, a, you know, got some regional theater and stuff like that. And then eventually got my own to sing. So, yeah, about a year I stopped. <laughs> and we are thankful for that. How about you, Sean? 
I don't really think I've had much of a big low. There's always an ebb and flow of the business as a whole. There are times when you're just busier than other time. But as far as the doubt, not so much, only because I've been very blessed in that I've had very little time, for the most part, to think about not making something work. Like I said, you have your down times, and sometimes it's not working as well as you'd like it to be working. But the tunnel gets a little bit more narrow, but it never closes. And then it opens up again and go, oh, yeah, okay, I'm all right again. And then you just keep moving, and you try to, as you move on in your career, keep those moments to a minimum in terms of time when they happen. Because the truth of the matter is in any creative field, unless you're really lucky, there's just gonna be some downtime. You know, it's just the way it works. You can't always be 100%, uh, I take that back. I can't always be 100% busy. I'm, I'm very happy as I was telling you earlier, I literally have more work than I need right now. But it's not always like that. So come on, bring it on. Cause that other time might show up. You don't know when it's coming. Right. and it. Being in the arts, if that's your main source of income, does require budgeting, should be one of the things that they kind of cover uh, as you're going through school. Yep. You both collaborated on, was it Seven Good Ways? Yeah. And how did that come about? I met Sean. I was singing in a gospel group called Gratitude. And a mutual friend of ours, he said, oh, I got this young guy that can play. And so he came and we met him. And I was trying to do, I think, a show at Alvin Ailey at the time. And I needed a, a keyboard. And I asked him if he could play. So he fit me in because he was also moving at the same time. And from that show on, he asked me to sing on projects. I would ask him to play on projects. And we really became a really good team of stuff. So we have been doing a couple of things with like Michelle Weeks and some other people who had done some club stuff and dance stuff. And eventually I wanted to start writing a little bit and I was in a garage theater group. And garage theater group is a youth theater company. And so I said, you know what? There's no piece out here about Kwanzaa. I mean, let's try to do some Kwanzaa songs and make it so that it's a universal thing that doesn't have to always be at the time of Kwanzaa. So I asked Sean if you want to do it. He said, yeah, let's get it. So I would do the top line, lyric and melodies and stuff, and tell him what kind of song I wanted it to be, to kind of be a music history piece. And he would do that type of music, and he produced it, and he, um, you know, he mixed it and everything for us. And that's how we got it. Excellent. <laughs> so, Sean, when you're listening to a song for the first time, what is it that you listen for is there something you hear that, that makes you think, okay, this one's going to be a hit? The thing that I've learned is you can't predict that at all. I try to start with me. If I like it, then I can put a good chunk, if not all, of me into making it into what I believe it can be. And I figure if I'm happy or if I'm writing with Gail, if we're happy, that's the beginning of it. You know, Then you start hoping for other stuff. And do you find that most of the artists you work with welcome your opinion and, and the direction that you take a song, or is it something that you do collaboratively with them? Or do you get a lot of pushback? I get very, very little pushback, not because I'm so good, just because I ask, what do you want? As a producer, it's not my job to tell them what their song is supposed to be, unless I see something. And even then, I'm not telling them what their song's supposed to be. I'm really just telling them what I see. And then we sit and talk about that. And if that's a direction they want to go in, then okay, we'll go in that direction. If they tell me, well, no, I was really feeling this being Eskimo dance. 
right, we need to figure out what Eskimo dance is and go over there then. But I don't get the pushback because I try not to be so belligerent that I'm telling them what their song needs to be. Now, if I wrote the song and I'm asking them to sing on it, I'm not looking for any pushback because I already have the vision of what I wrote. But if they wrote it, like if I work with Gail, first question's out of my, well, what are you hearing? What do you want this to be? Silly did something I'm pretty sure she'll share with you later on. Because Billie Holiday is kind of a big deal right now. We did a Billie Holiday song as a ballad. And she came to me and said, what do you think about doing a Billie Holiday song and have it remixed from a ballad to a house song? And I said, that's great. And then she told me about the Billie Holiday movie because she's much more on top of stuff like that. Between her and yes, I will call them my nieces, which are her kids. <laughs> They're way on top of everything. So if I got questions about pop culture, I go to the kids. Gail's next in line after the kids. They all know more than I do. That's just the way it is. Yeah, today's world, that, that's very true. I just let it be. She said, okay, well, there already is a movie that's out and doing well and getting a lot of attention. Why not see if we tag along on some of that, doing something more than likely very few are doing. And is that something you're currently working on, Gil Lou, or because you had already written Billy? Yeah, we want to do a story of Billy Holiday. And Sean actually did all our charts and stuff and arranged and stuff for that as well. But what happened was I was so interested in watching USA versus Billy Holiday. And it was interesting that they picked the story behind Strange Fruit. Because when we did our piece a few years back, and we found out that the presence, we'll say police presence, that was prohibiting her and really making it difficult for her to work. We got the news that that person was actually from New York and that that person had a really big crush on Billie Holiday. And because it didn't play out, he was vengeful enough to take her cabaret license and harp on this song and send all this stuff to the FBI about Strange Fruit. So when we wanted to talk about that part in the piece we wrote, his estate said no. Because I don't know who it was or what it was, but they did not allow you to mention this person's name. They did not allow you to mention the court problems with Strange Fruit. They didn't allow you to do any of that. You could sing the song in a piece, but we found that. So fast forward to see this piece focused specifically on that was just fascinating for me. And so consequently, I said, this is a great time to sort of do a resurgence for Billie Holiday music. I'm sure everybody's going to kind of jump on that bandwagon of some sort because her strange fruit story is so relevant to what's going on. And I said, hey, let's try it and see if we do it. So yes, it is something new because we have a single out already. Um, I still love that's doing a little something different. But I was like, let's jump on this Billie Holiday. We could do that because I had a chance to do that before. So that's something that's in the works right now. It's not something that's out there. Right, not yet. Okay, cool. Mm -hmm. So in today's environment, has the pandemic affected how you find new artists? How do they come to you, Sean? At this point, it's really all word of mouth. As a matter of fact, I have a project that I'm dealing with. And we're trying to do something that would be considered probably like soulful European pop. We wanted to start to find an artist and couldn't because everything had kind of shut down. But the plan was Instagram clubs, things of that nature. But Instagram now is kind of flooded. We'd be doing that all day. And because a lot of these people, even if you did find them, they want to record themselves. I'm a little uncomfortable with that. The girls, the boys, the singers in general, 
that can sing. That doesn't mean their recording skills are at that level. And that's a little bothersome for me because, as Gail will tell you, I get a little nitpicky because there's a difference between producing the record for the song versus producing the record for the singer. The singer wants to hear what makes them good, what makes them unique, what makes them wow, you know, which is quite normal because that's the thing they're focused on. As a producer, I have to see the entire record. So yes, they're the primary focus in that record, but they can't be the only focus in that record. And if I could interject. Sure. And not only that, but the thing that's really good about Sean is he is a very good vocal producer. Now you can record yourself if you like not necessarily going to do a good job that will show the best part of your voice. You may just like it because it's your voice and you hear it, but you really need a second ear that is familiar with voices and knows what voices can do and can hear where your voice is going and can add and enhance your voice. And you really can't do that, I don't really think, as a vocalist, just listening to it and recording yourself. You need a really good vocal producer. And then from there, he will mix it into the music so you get a very lovely balance of everything. But you really need a vocal producer. And that kind of ties in the quality of the equipment because a lot of these kids today who are out on Instagram and whatnot are recording off their iPhones. But it also touches a little bit on one of your pet peeves, which I think is just knowledge yeah. of music and being able to use their voice and how to use it. Definitely. Please, please study some. You got to get a basic working knowledge, if for no other reason than to consistently sing what you want to sing. You will hear something perhaps, or your producer will hear something and they'll give it to you and say, here, sing this. Now, if you don't have your ears together, you're not going to be in pitch. You're not going to be in pocket, keeping the rhythm to enhance the track you're singing to. And if you study, you will learn how to adjust so that you can do that. Nobody has what everybody needs off the bat. But if you get yourself some breathing, you get your technique, you get your projection so you can have some dynamics and not one thing. If you do some listening, you can do more work and you can do a better job. You really have to invest in the musicality of singing as a vocalist. You have to be able to communicate to the musician that you're going to sing with. If you sing with a band and they want you to go back to A and you say, A what? That's not working. So I can't work with you because I call them paragraphs. Right. <laughs> the way they come in my script yeah. is what I... You're right. Can we go to the second paragraph? Right. And she's like, well, what measure is it? Uh, uh, right. I don't know. Right. Two inches? Exactly. It's about two inches right. down on the page. <laughs> All of the above. All of the above. <laughs> we have T.S. and Elsie because that's our kids. Uh, you know, I had a chance to study some music and so did Andre. And one of a, a very famous uh, artist was discussing music and he said Mixolydian and my daughter said what is he on Nickelodeon what is that it's exactly. <laughs> you know just little stuff like that it, it just changes the perception of who you're working with if you can't communicate right or if you can't adjust for what they need you got to learn your craft that also touches a little on a pet peeve of Sean's I think which is do you want to be famous or do you want to be good? There you go. Amen. There you go. And there's nothing wrong with either. Just know. Yeah. Know what you're doing. Just know and don't kid yourself. Right. Right. If you really just want to be famous and you're not interested necessarily in being good, that's okay. Let the people you're working with know that so they can focus on getting you there. 
Right. Mm -hmm. Because if in their mind, they're trying to turn you into this wonderful singer and you have absolutely no interest in practicing that particular craft, both of y'all are going to lose. Exactly. What do we say? Practice? What's that thing about practice? Please. Can you please? Can you come to the studio and know what you're doing? And can you eat before you get there? I do try to come prepared. Like I'll study and learn my stuff. So I know what's up. Yes. And is there any equipment that an artist today, because most of them are singer, songwriter, acoustic kind of things. Is there any home equipment that they should have if they want to self-produce or should they not spend a lot on that, but just try to get something of decent quality to bring to a producer and see if they can do anything with it? I would ask them, where are you trying to go? And with that in mind, I can suggest the vehicle you need to get there. If it's just straight up singer songwriter, like say a Kobe Calais or somebody that's really just doing guitar and vocal, there's certain equipment that you can use to get that going. But if your idea is to be 2022's version of Frank Sinatra, that's not going to cut it. Before I could give the correct answer, I'd need to know what they're trying to accomplish. Okay. There's even, if you're doing dance music or house music, there's smaller programs other than Pro Tools, Cubase, Audio Logic, Digital Performer that can be used to get that done, like Reason or Ableton, where it doesn't necessarily have to have all the flexibility that the bigger programs have. Because that particular genre doesn't really require as much flexibility. So if they tell me where they want to go, then I can make suggestions about what kind of equipment you might want. And how does an artist today, once they've done that, they've recorded something, how do they get it to you? Email is probably the only thing that works for me. Well, that's not true anymore. I could probably find out how to contact Beyonce, but, you know, she's not going to pick up the phone. You know what I mean? That's just the reality of that. In the same situation, you might find it. And if you can email it to me, I'll see, well, who's this? Who's it? And well, I came through Mary, but if I see Mary, I'm in. If I see Gail Lou, I'm in. Well, now I'll pay attention. I used to get sent things to my home address and it's hodgepodge. So primarily there has to be a connection somehow to get to somebody. Usually, yes. Along with all that, after you get it to Sean or whatever producer you're sending to, and they contact you, please follow up. Because when you don't follow up and you drag your feet and you figure it out, please be on top because after a while, that is a very good indication of your work ethic. Yes. When you do not follow up and work ethic is a big deal. Right. You certainly don't want to waste anybody's time. If they've taken the time to actually listen to what you've sent and reach out to you, you should respond. Exactly. It quick. And if I may piggyback on that, where you're located or where you're sending it to matters. Gail Lou and I are both based in the whole New York area. I can find quality guitarists, quality singers, quality bass players, almost on every corner. So it's not like you're gonna be one of seven. So either you gotta have something really, really special or you have to have a good personality. And the people that you're trying to get to actually might like being around you. That also touches on a little bit on what we talked about very early on, which was the connections you make. Yeah. 
there are a bazillion good vocalists out there. But if you're a real wacko, you're unreliable, you're nasty to the people, nobody is going to want to work with you. So it's very important. Mm-hmm. I've got one right now who could sing the paint off a wall. I wouldn't call her unless Jesus came down <laughs> and told me, yo, you got to use her. It, it just won't happen. And she doesn't know, but she's just a pain in the butt. She's very into her, which is fine, but I don't need you around me then. Right. And so now, Gelu, if I go to you. So an artist has written something. They've gotten a producer to listen to it. The producer has reached out. What should the artist prepare to meet with the producer Is there anything they should be looking for? Yeah, I would say look for someone who is interested. Now, if they called you because they have a project, as Sean mentioned before, they probably have in mind what they're looking for. I would uh, get examples of songs that are out there, styles that are out there. I would pick an artist and say, I want to cut something like this, just so I can give them a reference point. And once I do that, I would really like that producer to say, okay, Let's see what we can do in that vein. They have to be that versatile, first of all, to be able to do that. Or have to be able, like Sean said, break it down, figure out how that song went together. It's like Picasso. Like Picasso had to learn all the styles first and before he went to do his own. So it's the same thing. You kind of have to learn the style that this person's asking for. And then together you can do your own. Now, I always think it's a red flag when a producer just simply is not interested in what it is that you want to do. I find that to be a problem. I really find that to be a problem if if they say, oh, you don't want to do that because then this is that and da, da, da. Now, I gave you what I'm caring for. I'm always open to how we're going to do it. But there's an old story that for a live show, Ella Fitzgerald was singing. And I forgot who it was that was playing behind her. And he started playing ahead of her, like over top of what she was doing. And she stopped her. So she said, if it's going to be like this, I'm going to stop music right now. And he was like, oh, God, I can't be the one responsible for Ella Fitzgerald quitting the music business. <laughs> you know, you just have to you kind of get it. You know, you have to realize it's a collaboration. And I think uh, that's what I need from a producer. But I have it already, so you say what's <laughs> And Sean, what is the difference between performance rights and publishing? Is there a difference or are they all the same thing? Well, the performance rights, you're, you're probably referring to PROs, ASCAP, BMI, and CSAT. They collect your publishing and your writing for you. Part of what I think you're discussing is when ASCAP, BMI, or CSAT get wind that a song has been played, there's different rates for whether it was streamed, whether it was played in a movie, whether it was played on TV, whether it was played on terrestrial radio, And they collect that for you. And quarterly, you get a check for your portion of what you wrote on that you have publishing control over. And I said it that kind of convoluted because it's entirely possible that, say, Gail wrote a song and the person is, I'll say I did it, with her. But we got artist A that's a huge artist. It's, you know, Rihanna or something. And Rihanna says, well, you guys understand I'm Rihanna. And and this is allowed, by the way. You're allowed to do this because it's all hypothetical. I sell millions of copies of records. So every record that's sold, you're writing and publishing collectively 
each of those songs is worth roughly 9.1 cents. She might say, well, you all know I'm going to sell almost guaranteed two or three million copies worldwide. So I'm basically putting money in your pocket. I want your publishing. So we might say, eh, what you think, Gail? Okay, we might say, okay, yeah. So we'll get the writing checks, but she'll collect our publishing checks, though she had nothing to do with it. Mm. You know, so that's where that could be convoluted just because of who the artist might be and the kind of pull that they have. You know, if it was, say, a lower tier artist, Gail and I might look at that and go, you're going to sell the same kind of records that if we gave it to artist Z, why should we give you the publishing? We'll keep it ourselves. Thank you, but no thanks. So how does a new artist, when they've written a new song, should they have it published right away or copyrighted? Is there a difference to protect themselves? Well, there is, but there are a number of ways. You can send it back to yourself. That's the poor man's copyright. You can send it to Washington to get it copywritten. At this day and age, what I like to do is create an electronic paper trail. So I'll register all my stuff right away, right into ASCAP so that it has a date, there's a stamp. So if you come up with something that I did January 1st of 2021, and you're claiming it's yours on March 30th, you're gonna have to go a little earlier than that or I'm gonna sue you. And if it's electronic, it's not like you could rewind the tape. And that doesn't cost anything or it does? Well, when you're an ASCAP member, you just register your song. So no, that wouldn't cost anything once you're a member. Okay. So for the up and coming who haven't had any connections or haven't become a member yet, they should mail it to themselves and don't open it. You know what I do? Shh, I'll give you a little secret that I used back when I was younger. What I do, which is very, very legal, is you have, say, a group of maybe 12 songs that you want to copyright under. I don't even know what the fee is now. What is it, Gail? Like $50, something like that? Yeah, I think it's 59 Okay, so let's just say it's $50. Normally, if you were to do one piece, you'd be $50 each one. I might have 12 songs, and I'll call them all Gail and Sean, April 2021, and then give them subtitles. I'm covered. 50 bucks, 12 songs. You do it as a project. And that's legal. <laughs> that's smart. So we talked a little bit about the best way for up-and-coming new artists to get noticed. Is it really Instagram? Is that where they have to go now? In my opinion, it's get your team and on your team have a social media person. When we did, I still love, the kids set up a schedule for me. Didn't follow it, but they set up a schedule. But like every Tuesday, this should happen. Every Wednesday, this should happen. On Thursday, it should happen. Then you wait. And then after two weeks, you should do this. And then after three, you should do this. And you should make sure it gets shared. You get somebody who's familiar with that. And you need that on your team. It's worth asking them. I don't know if you have to buy them lunch or buy them dinner or whatever, have it. But it's a valuable thing now for marketing. You have to have a person that knows how to do social marketing and get your name and your face and everything out there. The truth about it is you can actually get in now without being good. <laughs> so a lot of it is, hey. Not if you go by Gail Lou. And who am I? <laughs> No, she's right if you're trying to be good. You know what I mean? I'm talking about that other thing now where you might just want to be popular. You know, because there's a lot of folks that have a good many followers, a good many 
Facebook friends, those people, because the artists themselves are on top of it, you put something on your Instagram, you put something on your Facebook or all these social media platforms, and all of a sudden you've got four or 5,000 people that are looking at your stuff, listening to your stuff, possibly purchasing your stuff, all because you're good at that. The actual singers of the world, the musicians of the world that are trying to be good, they're not going to get away with that because their image isn't the front runner. Right. So yes, they need to have that, but they got to do a bunch of other stuff too. And having somebody who's focusing on marketing and branding you, I guess they would stay up to date on what the current platforms are that you have to be on. Yeah. Right. Exactly. You know, everybody's not good at everything. Even when you're doing music, everybody can't write and sing it and produce it. Most of the time, you seldom get that. I mean, Stevie Wonder is Stevie Wonder, but you seldom get somebody who can do it all. Same thing with where the trajectory is for your career. It's good to have people that are good at what they do and diversify what they call it and don't micromanage. Let them do what they do well. There you go. And that's one of the things, I won't mention the names, but there's really big singers who I admire so much because what they do is they sing. Now, if they have an interest in writing, they might also maybe write one or two songs on their project. But there's such heavyweights as singers or and or artists. They let the people that produce, produce. They let the people that write, write. They go out and they do what they do. Exactly. And it's been a, one person I will, Celine Dion. Just take a look at her albums. She writes very little. She's such a supreme singer. It's not even funny for me. She can do anything. And she has a good time doing it. She doesn't write that stuff. Right. Exactly. Now, if you want to write, though, you better write at, like you practice. Yes. You have to keep writing and writing and writing, just like you keep singing and singing and singing. Or playing and playing and playing. It's another skill that you have to practice doing and learning how to do that. Exactly. How many hours a week would you say you spend, Gail Lou, either writing, singing, playing, Hours a week. I am very annoying to everyone around me because in second grade, I was sitting and the girl next to me raised her hand and said, she's humming over here. <laughs> <laughs> Embarrassed myself to death because I had no idea I was humming over there. For me, it's just second nature. I do, though, when I have a project, I make sure I focus on it and I get. So I'd say about two and a half hours maybe of practicing something. I got to go take a break. And then I'll come back and do some more. So for me, even when I'm rehearsing a group and I'm rehearsing a musical, like the children's theater, two hours, and then I give everybody a break and then we'll come back. So two hours with a break, I could do that three to eight, five to 10, you know, I don't really get that tired of it. I get a little punch drunk and then I know I got to go take a nap and come back. But hours a week, it's got to be at least maybe 20 hours a week. Wow. And if I may interject right quick, I think there's a slight difference between where Gail and I are and where maybe your students are. Because at that age, we didn't have the responsibilities of life. So that was easily doubled. Yeah, yeah, that's true. When I was in high school, I was in the senior band. I was in the jazz band. I was in the orchestra. I come home and I'm doing band practice with the guys in the band. In all my classes, by the time I was in my senior year, all of them except for two were music. 
They were the music of sports. Me too, that was her. You know what I mean? So there's a difference between where your students are and where we are. What we have to do in terms of practice is more maintenance. Right. Because we've already done it. And what did they say? It's 10,000 hours to master something? Yeah, that's chewing maybe for me. (laughs) (laughs) There you go. But that is true. Yeah, that's right. Because all through high school and college, everything I did once I hit about 11th grade was all music classes. Yeah. Sean, you said something before. You said singer or artist. What's the distinction between the two? Well, sometimes you can be an artist that isn't really focused on the craft of the music. In other words, what you're singing isn't necessarily the thing that's at the forefront of what you're doing. Say somebody like a Harry Connick Jr., the musicianship is what his whole thing is. If you're going to try to get him to get out there and dance and put on a show, you're going to be bored to tears because that's not what he does. Okay. Meanwhile, someone like Janet Jackson, as much as I love her, I don't necessarily want her doing jazz and scatting, but going to her show, I'm sitting there riveted going, ooh, did you see what she did? She's an artist. She's an artist that's a performer. Harry Connick's an artist that's a singer. Gotcha. You know what I mean? There there are singers that I, and now I'll leave the names out of it, I'll go hear them unplugged any day of the week. There are singers that I will go hear, or artists that I'll go see, perform any day of the week. I don't necessarily want them crossing. Gotcha. And then we get a little bit of background. Those triple threats that are what made Broadway what Broadway is, is also a very interesting but specific skill. Not everybody can do that. And I am here to tell you that I went to go see Donna Summer's musical. Oh, I knew you were going to bring that one up. Yes. Oh, my God. (laughs) And I mean, I know the musical director. We work together and stuff like that. And I was like, what am I watching? Why are they singing out of key? Oh, my gosh. (laughs) You don't sing out of pitch in life. What are you doing to me, man? And you're messing up the song because you got everything on synthesizer. That's a whole nother complaint. But I'm just saying. You know, Sean, she waited 50 minutes and 37 seconds to get that in there. Yes, but that's the thing. <laughs> and it's okay because I feel her pain. Yes, you got to know what you're doing. Please learn your stuff. Oh, my God. Yeah, that's a generational thing, too. Because when Donna Summer's music came out, there was the mix of live and synthesis. That's fine. And if you don't have that, you're not going to be authentic toward the music. Right. You've just got a 30-piece orchestra down under the stage playing. Or you just got a synthesizer, three, four of them. That's not working. And can we just say Donna Summer did not sing out of pitch? Oh, my goodness. You can't sing on pitch live. You got to leave. I'm not having it. (laughs) (laughs) Everybody got a bad day. I got that. But no, no, no. You're consistently out of key. And the piano and the music is playing, or the track. What are you listening to? Although I know that's not right. If you hear the piano going, ding, 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 you're probably off. <laughs> <laughs> right, exactly, exactly. Do you think, is vinyl coming back? I'm starting to hear more about it. It was just trickling a little bit, but does that change what you're listening for in a record if it's going on vinyl or if it's going to be electronic? Well, we just had the single that we did, I Still Love. There is a whole big surge of vinyl in Europe. And a friend of mine's recommended, because he was in a group in the 70s called Copacetics. 
they picked up his cut and they put it out on vinyl. And it was a really, really nice opportunity. It's about to be released, like I think in a couple of days. So he told me to contact them because they were looking for stuff that kind of reminiscent. So I still love it's like 70s. Sounds, sounds like soul, disco, funk, as they call it. So I contacted the person and he called me back without talking to the other person and recommended me because he just liked the way it sounded. And we will have a vinyl version of I Still Love in about, I think they said in about a month. They already did the artwork and they sent the, the, the retro looking artwork. We sent them pictures and stuff. And we will see it, it could, it's sort of like you have a whole nother life for that single because it's only in vinyl. It doesn't affect what goes for streaming. It doesn't affect mixing. It doesn't affect any other thing, just vinyl. And so we're looking forward to seeing how that's going to go. So they said in your bit is definitely a resurgence. So we shall see. Okay. Vinyl is having a second coming. That's what this is. Because used to be that vinyl was what you listened to when you were kind of an audiophile. Yes. You know, that's the high level of upper brow music. And now that cassettes, I know I'm dating myself, A-track and CDs have kind of gone away. Even with all the streaming and the electronics, vinyl's what's in numbers in the second slot now. Wow. Yeah, isn't that something? I find that so interesting. It should be really interesting to watch the next, I'd say, half a decade. Yeah, see what that does. Just to see how vinyl does what it does. Because right now, a lot of the younger folks unless they're these hipsters. Right. They don't even have turntape. Yeah. When we were doing Grease with the kids one summer and they were coming running on stage and I said, it was the party scene. And I said, where are the records? <laughs> and one of them turned around and went, what? I'm like, the records. Did somebody bring the records? What are records? I said, oh my God. <laughs> yeah. And so it begins. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Where do you see music going? Like, what is the future? I actually saw a group combine every single thing. We had background vocalists. We had a live five-piece band. We had a lead vocalist. And we had a DJ. And they had all of it working at once. And I loved it. I thought it was great. Background singers were on point. Everybody was playing. It was the original piece. And the lead singer was, I think, if you want to say the musical director or the one who put it all together. And it wasn't Robert Glasper, but it was somebody in that class. And it was just wonderful. And it was an R&B song, but it had all the elements. And then they added in the, the, a little bit of scratch and a little bit of DJ. And it was really, really nice. It was excellent. And once you have it all, then you can break off pieces. You bring it all together and then you can break off this and break off this. I think rap helped a lot with pocket. And I was taught to put the emphasis on the right syllable when I'm writing and singing. So when I'm writing something, I'll make sure it lands on the right syllable. They don't really do that. And it's very clever listening to them because they're looking at the pocket of the song and they will take the emphasis and put it on another syllable, but it still has the meaning behind it. And so it's kind of clever, I think. It's really clever when they do that. And as long as they land in the pocket, they got it. And I think that's cool. I think that's a, another method to learn. I think it's cool. So. And that's something new. Right. It's not just a revisit of an old genre kind of spiced up a little bit. Nope. That is something that came out of rap, I believe. And I love it. Yeah, that's great. How about you, Sean? Where do you see music going in the future? I'm not really sure. Gail's much more up on pop music, which is kind of ironic because I used to listen to 
pop music from the time I got up until I was ready to work. And then I got bored with Z100, if you all are familiar with New York's radio oh, yeah. station. I would just so that I was aware of what was popular, I would listen to them. But I really don't know now because the outlets are so varied. So there's an obtuse amount of music and musical styles that are being accepted. And to me, there's really no focus. It's everywhere, which means it could be anywhere. So I really don't know how to answer that question. Some of the older genres, you know, jazz, classical music, they only stretch, but so far. What's pop, like Gail was saying, it's just very different now. It can be whatever they make it out to be, so long as it's accepted, it's just popular. Right now, there's really not an R&B per se category, but if you listen to some artists, you can hear the influence, but they're really doing something else. I think the closest one to actually doing R&B right now is probably like Bruno Mars, but he's a bit of a throwback, you know what I mean? He's a bit of a throwback. So in terms of where it's gonna move forward, it's become almost anything because compositionally it makes me nuts because right. this generation, as creative as they are, and they are very creative, they don't seem to need matching harmonic content. They put stuff because they feel it should be there and if it's dissonant, oh well. Which I guess wouldn't bother me if I thought they were doing it on purpose. But I don't. I think they're just doing it because that's what they want to do and they're going to make that work. And then because there's a whole generation like that, it's accepted. And I think it's too because there is a whole generation that didn't have that basic music education that we needed. I had to do a session and the lead singer was there. I was the oldest person in the room. And the lead singer was there and I came in to do background and they gave me the track. And they told me what to sing. I said, that's not in the same key as the music. And they looked at me like, what, girl? What are you, what? What are you talking about? And I was like, it's not in the same key. Do you want me to sing it there? Because it's not in the same key. And they're like, huh, well, if you can't sing it, then we're just going to have to do send somebody else. I was like, okay, that's fine with me. If you want somebody else to do it, that's cool. So the person that hired me went there and heard what I did and called me up and said, they had you singing in a different key. I was like, I know, from the track. And he said, and I said that to them, and they looked at me like I was from outer space. And I said, yes, they did the same thing to me. Now, the problem I have with that is if someone had taught them differently, if they had had just the knowledge of it, they would have at least known what to listen for. They listen to what they're singing or what they're doing in their head or what they put down and they don't relate it. There's like no relative pitch. They don't relate it. But I do think that is something that is definitely changing. I hope so. I do so too. Because we got a uh, Jasmine guy, just to name, you know, just to name, uh, she's an excellent R&B singer. And they got kids that are trying to imitate her riffs. At least that's ear training for me. At least it's that. Because they try to get each note and they try to do it exactly right. And I'll take it. You meant Jasmine Sullivan. Who'd I say? Jasmine Guy. Excuse me. <laughs> she was on an old sitcom back in the 70s. Yeah, Jasmine right? Sullivan, I'm sorry. <laughs> I started to correct you and I said... Well, hold on now. And then when you said the riff, I said, okay, she means Jasmine Sullivan. Yeah, Jasmine Sullivan. I'm sorry, Jasmine Sullivan. Who's a beast. She can sing. Yes, she is. She can sing. She does just enough, but she could go over the top if she wanted to. But that's the craft of it. I'm sorry, Jasmine Guy, 
I love you, but I, I, I didn't mean you. And Jasmine Sullivan, I'm sorry. Jasmine Sullivan, she stands still, I want to hear it. A lot of the other singers that are very popular, if they stand still, there's no show. Yeah. Jasmine Sullivan, I'll sit and listen to her. Right. All day. In a song, you've got the song, the singer, and the producing. Are they equal parts to make it a success, or is does any one weigh a little heavier? In my opinion, they're all very important. I would say the production is probably slightly ahead of the others, only because the musicians and the singer have to be part of the production. If they do a great performance, singer does a great performance, musician do a great performance, and the producer screws everything up, it does, it's not going to matter. But if the singer did a pretty good job and the producer can correct it, if the musicians did a pretty good job and through editing the producer can correct it, you can still get a good record out. Okay. If the producer screws things up, it's nice and thoroughly screwed up. Yeah, there's people that I think of an excellent, a very, very, very popular artist that I loved and I thought it was very cool music. Band was great. And then I saw them live, and I was like, oh my gosh, chick. So, so if it weren't for the fact that the production was so good and everybody loved the product, they would go and pay a ticket and see this performance and enjoy it because they know it. But a musician's point of view, I was like, oh my goodness, no, no, no. <laughs> when you see a live performance, if they're like a Janet Jackson who's dancing and moving or Britney Spears who's constantly going, are they really singing while they're doing that? Some are because like getting back to Broadway, some have to do that. That was the standard. I think they've been a little lax with that recently. I think they try to cut them some slack and try to pre-record and all that stuff. I just think it's an easy way out. You want to make sure it's good. But I mean, I still think there are some that can knock that right out the box and can actually dance and do both things. Those are the people that get the most respect from me. I would agree, yeah. And to piggyback on what Gail was saying, just to go a little further, I think what happens to a lot of artists like the two you mentioned is everything in the show is very well choreographed. Mm -hmm. So there are times when they know, yeah, the artist can sing live, but when they can't, the track's running along anyway, and the engineer in the house and the monitors maybe even know when to mute because the whole thing's choreographed. Exactly. Okay. That show is the exact same show you're going to see the next night. Right. Exactly. That's how that winds up working. Whereas, in contrast, if you were going to see a jazz artist do their thing, you might get the same songs, but you're not going to get the same versions. Right. And that's the difference. All the pop artists, you're going to see a show. That's just the reality of it. Right. So some of them, you know, if I'm dancing at 50 miles an hour, there's a good chance I'm out of breath. But you shouldn't be. <laughs> the truth is, do you want to hear that? Or do you want to hear the show? And that was going to be my next question. Nowadays, I remember going early to see concerts when the band would just come out and play and sing. Right. And then it became a staged production like you were talking about. Yes. And I don't know if, you know, personally, I'm going to hear the music. Right. If I want to see the show, I'll go to Broadway. Right. Or, you know, live theater somewhere. But if I'm going to see a recording artist, I kind of want to hear them. 
I could listen to the record on the way in and on the way home. Record. Can I even say record anymore? Or are they just recordings now? You can now. You absolutely can. <laughs> That's right. I don't own any vinyl, but I can still say record. I do. <laughs> <laughs> she and I are on vinyl, actually. Yeah, right? Isn't that something? Who would think? Is there anything I haven't asked yet that I should have that you want the young artists that are coming up to know? I'll start with you, Sean. Mine is going to be very, very simple. Get to know you. Don't fool you. If you want to be an artist that performs, head toward that. You're still going to have to know how to sing a little bit, but head toward that. If you want to be a singer, get to know that person learn how to do that and do that. If you want to be some measure of the two, learn to do that. But whatever you're doing, put in the time, getting to figure out who you want to be. It'll make your life so much easier. I've known since high school the field that I want to be in. And then by the time I got to my senior year, I realized the thing that I really want to do, the whole writing and production thing, even though I went on tour, that wound up falling into my lap. So I just took it. If you're going to pay me for working an hour a day, okay. But I got a chance and I'm getting a chance now to do what I love to do because I'm doing it all day. That's what I study. I sit and I have conversations with anybody that'll listen to me because it's all drivel as far as most people are concerned. But all the technical stuff, I'm a geeky dude. I love that stuff. I like knowing why it works. I just know who I am. Your people need to know who they are. Yeah, I think for artists, right along with what Sean is saying, also consider the source of critics. Whoever is critiquing you or criticizing you or saying discouraging things, consider that they are not you. They do not know what is in your heart. They do not know what your path should take. They really don't know. That goes right along with what Sean say. Know yourself and use your art and your music and your writing and stuff to uplift yourself as you're doing it. To use it as release or use it as an expression. But because the emotion and expression behind what you are doing is, I think, the most important contribution you can make. And it's also the most nourishing to you. And there's room for all of that. There are so many people with the, that feel the same thing that you feel, that can understand what you are trying to say. And it's necessary. There's a need for everybody's contribution in the arts. There's a need for it. That's why it's there. Excellent. The objective is always, or should always, be to be happy and make other people happy along the way. Right. You know, you, you can't do something where you're miserable doing it because you're getting a check. Right. Everybody around you is going to suffer. That's right. That's right. That's <laughs> true. Well, again, thank you both for doing this. You're welcome. You're welcome. I really do appreciate it. And hopefully someday I'll get to meet you live and in person, Sean. It will be. And I know I will see you again, Miss Gailou. Give my best to the family. I certainly will. You too. Thanks, guys. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Theater Project Thinks About with Gail Liu and Sean V. Lucas. We hope you enjoyed our deep dive into the music industry, and we hope the discussion will give you some insight into the business and help you on your journey. Our audio engineer for this performance was Alex Gomez, 
and our theme music was by Gail Liu and Damien DeSandes. Visit thetheaterproject.org to sign up for our mailing list, as well as check out all the links and resources in the show notes. We'll leave you now with Gail Liu's latest, I Still Love. That's all for this episode, and we'll see you next time. Don't take is the blame you can say.